Welcome to One Sweet Dream, a podcast where we explore the dream that was and is the Beatles. Welcome to One Sweet Dream. I am your host, Diana Erickson, and I am again joined by Duncan Driver. This is part two of the Cleve series profile on John Lennon. In part one of this episode, we discuss the first part of Maureen's article on John Lennon. In it, she establishes the permanence of the Beatles' fame, power, and status in the world. She also introduces us to the groovy bubble of the Weybridge Esher Beatles community, highlighting the closeness of the Beatles and reinforcing that they are better friends than ever before. She astutely describes Lennon, comparing him to Henry VIII, highlighting his regal and mercurial nature that is at once childish, vague, tough, and indolent, but also quick-witted, easygoing, enthusiastic, and charming. She takes us on a tour of Lennon's house, pausing to observe Lennon's past and current obsessions, his toys and acquisitions, which include a suit of armor, crutches across, boxes that continually blink, and a gorilla suit. They then speed through Lennon's house with a tiny Julian and his porcelain cat trailing behind, while John opines on different subjects, including religion. Where we left him was talking about his acquisitions, and where we pick up is Maureen's account of John's shopping sprees. And so I think that's all the setup we need. Let's jump straight back into our exploration of Maureen Cleve's profile on John Lennon. He shops in lightning swoops on Asprey's these days, and there is some fine wine in his cellar, but he is still quite unselfconscious. He is far too lazy to keep up appearances, even if he had worked out what the appearances should be, which he is not. Um, I like how dryly funny she can be in these articles. She's very funny, and clearly she finds them very amusing, which they are. You know, they're such characters. Yeah. And she sees them through this affectionate lens, which makes the profile so, so lovely and enjoyable. Mm. And, you know, I love this observation that John is unselfconscious and unaware of appearances because to some extent it rings true. But on the other hand, having studied John for a long time, I also think it is one of the trickiest, most complex statements that she makes in this whole piece because You know, John's always operating at two levels. And I think he doesn't always reveal how much he's taking in. I think he does have a sense of appearances. Maybe, 
Maybe it's more that he just isn't beholden to them. Mm. I can see what she means. John is such a force of nature and such a character, and he's so self-involved and arrogant that I think he does come off as unselfconscious. Like, why would he compare himself to other people he doesn't respect? You know, yeah. and I think that John is relatively unconcerned with most people. He's competitive with the Beatles and with Dylan and maybe occasionally the Stones. But I don't think he sees most people at his level. But we do have a ton of evidence to suggest he is highly aware of power dynamics. Yeah. This reinforces this idea of John being so self-centered. Like he's interested in himself rather than other people, whereas Paul is very aware of the world around him, yes. of what's done and what isn't done. And John would kind of like to, but he loses interest because he's so in his own little bubble. Paul probably learned from the Ashers how lunch is done, but I get the <laughs> sense that he would have figured it out even if he wasn't with the Ashers, whereas John, he hasn't quite figured it out. Yeah. But this idea, he's far too lazy to keep up appearances, even if he had worked out what the appearances should be, which he is not. Now, I get that John is fronting a little bit with her. This is kind of John's sexiness. I think he plays it not trying too hard. Like this yeah. to me reads a little bit like this because I also know how obsessed with fashion John is. I don't quite buy into the fact that he doesn't like to keep up with appearances. But one gets the sense that he isn't trying to impress or keep up with other people. But he does like to keep on top of things. Yeah, I know what you mean about him not necessarily being fully revealing for someone as, as revealing as John can be. You know that story that Allen Ginsberg tells? And it's around about this time yeah. where John goes into a, a hotel room with Bob Dylan is there and Allen Ginsberg is yeah. there. And there's a kind of awkward pause in conversation and Alan fills it by asking John, have you ever read William Blake? Um, and John instantly replies, never heard of him. And Cynthia cuts him off and says, John, stop lying. <laughs> it's, it's that thing of, of wanting to put out a slightly guarded, but also slightly provocative position to see how people react to it, even if it isn't fully revealing of himself. Well, also remember, this is around the time when they're yeah, doing the Penna Baker film. That exact time, yeah. And, and he talks about it in his Lennon Remembers interview about how he's on Dylan's turf and how, how worried he is. You know, he's so insecure about it. John has mastered the art of seeming very open while being very, very elusive. And remember, May Pang talks about that. It is almost disconcerting his ability to seem very open and vulnerable and yet not at all who he is. Mm. And so we've got to remember that. I mean, John's a genius, you know, John is a genius. I do think that John is unselfconscious in a way because he's so self-centered. But on the other hand, to think that John isn't fully aware of the impression that he's giving is a mistake. Yeah. He is very keen on books. We'll always ask what is good to read. He buys quantities of books, and these are kept tidily in a special room. He has Swift, Tennyson, Huxley, Orwell, costly leather-bound editions of Tolstoy, Oscar Wilde. 
Then there's Little Women, all the William books from his childhood, and some unexpected volumes such as 41 Years in India by Field Marshal Lord Roberts, and Curiosities of Natural History by Francis T. Buckland. This last, with its chapter headings, Earless Cats, Wooden-Legged People, The Immortal Harvey's Mother, is right up his street. That's what I mean when I yeah. say you are kind of obsessed with what you might call <laughs> ugly people. <laughs> right. Well, before I read her last point about it being right up his street, I was like, what are you talking about? This is exactly the kind of things that John Lennon would love. Yeah, I, I suppose you would think if if John Lennon is a sort of countercultural 60s icon and uh, damning of Christianity, that it would be weird for his uh, library to include a lot of fusty old volumes of um, British imperialism, but it does. It's like Paul says, he's the only person he ever met who'd read all of Winston Churchill's works, which is it's in, in a way it's a slightly odd thing for John to read given how how much of a of an icon of the previous generation Churchill was. Well, you know, he does have the middle name Winston, so mm. he had to check him out. He has to identify with somebody. Right. But then again, John was more than a countercultural 60s icon. In truth, John was an eccentric artist with, with a broad range of interest, as we see here. And what I found interesting about this passage, actually, is as opposed to the rest of the house that seems out of control, all of a sudden this gets calm here. Hmm. This paragraph is calm. You know, it's, it's his books are kept tidily. Tidily in a special room. Yes. It's like the, the, uh, the, the, the part of him, that the, the Mendip's bedroom bit of him that persists at Weybridge is that special room. Yeah, it kind of seems like this is his oasis or this is where he escapes to. It seems like this is where he is at ease. This is where he can relax. And one gets the sense that he really is reading these books. Mm. You know, he has these leather bound um, editions of Tolstoy and Oscar Wilde because he loves these books, you know. Mm. Yeah, I do. The way John will sometimes drop a quote from one of these figures into an interview and the way he does it, he he generally chooses quite an obscure quote and gets it word perfect. Mm. And that to me suggests someone who's actually read these books. Right. And spent time, like thought about them, you know. Mm. Yeah, I always like that example. Um, when he's talking about wanting to stay in America, he quotes Churchill saying, uh, it's an Englishman's inalienable right to live wherever the hell he likes. That seems to be representative of how John thinks of himself, but it's also it's 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 not a common Churchill quote. It's it's an obscure one. Well, we see even in Get Back, you know, his ability to string together the lyrics to communicate, like what they're doing when they're in that circle on the day that John has done heroin. But mm. he does it throughout the film. He strings together lyrics. It's just like John's mind is like a metal trap, you know, in terms mm. of just his ability with words and lyrics and lines from books to recall them and put them together in the appropriate manner. It's, it's, it's part of his genius, right? Yeah, that's right. Shall we read about Bodesha? Sure. Bodicea? I'm not even sure how to pronounce this. Yeah. Let's say Bodicea. I think that's correct. Okay. He approaches reading with a lively interest untempered by too much formal education. I've read millions of books, he said. That's why I seem to know things. He is obsessed by Celts. I've decided I am a Celt, he said. I'm on Bodicea's side. All those bloody blue-eyed blondes chopping people up. 
I have an awful feeling wishing I was there, not there with scabs and sores, but there through reading about it. The books don't give you more than a paragraph about how they lived. I have to imagine it. This is what I mean when I say his reality has this surreal psychedelic quality. He can read about, I don't know, um, Celtish battles happening 1500 years ago, and his imagination recreates it in this surreal, vivid way. Yeah, it's amazing. It just reflects how how imaginative and curious John is. It, it You know, what I thought was interesting was that John reads and is so curious about the world through his books, whereas Paul is so interested in people and learning about the world. John likes to be fairly contained. Like that's mm. how he likes to sort of experience the world is through mm. his mind and reading and imagination. Yeah. They're both curious in their own way. They are. I, I wonder if John would have uh, appreciated shows like Vikings and, you know. Uh, John would have had an awful time with the uh, uh, Netflix world. I mean, not awful as in he would have hated it. He would have lost himself. Yeah, exactly, for, exactly. For weeks on end and then cancelled his account. He exactly. decided that that was over and then had to reactivate his account when he wanted to go on another binge. Exactly. And three more accounts, including yeah. Hulu and yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> He can sleep almost indefinitely. He's probably the laziest person in England. Physically lazy, he said. I don't mind writing or reading or watching or speaking, but sex is the only physical thing I can be bothered with anymore. Mm. That's a curious thing. I wonder if he's being deliberately provocative to Maureen by making that point about sex. Um, possibly. Oh, I think so. I think he's being very provocative. It sounds like he's flirting. Yeah. It sounds like he's both flirting with her, but also flirting with the whole of the UK, <laughs> the whole re readership. You know what I mean? Like it's kind of putting it on blast, you know? It, John kind of reminds me of a, like a cat here, you know? He's, he can be lazy and self-interested and self-centered with the desire really only to please himself. And he has this ability to just relax into whatever he's interested in at that time. But on the other side, there's this driven, restless side of John. So, you know, this comment about him being the laziest person in England, I think this is a little bit of self-image that John likes to perpetuate. I just think that John's um, so-called laziness is not necessarily laziness. I suspect his brain is working very hard. His imagination is, is quite fertile during these restful periods. And also, I do think he's being flirtatious with Maureen. Like, he's like, ah, oh, you know, I'm very lazy except sex. It's very sexy, actually, that sure. kind of statement, you know? Yeah. At least to a woman. At least to a woman. <laughs> <laughs>
Occasionally he is driven to London in the rolls by an ex-Welsh guardsman called Anthony. Anthony has a moustache that intrigues him, <laughs> as you say. What is that? <laughs> the day I visited him, he had been invited to lunch in London, about which he was rather excited. Do you know how long lunch lasts? He asks. I've never been to lunch before. I went to a Lions the other day and had an egg and chips and a cup of tea. The waiters kept looking and saying, no, it isn't him. It can't be. <laughs> Yes. Okay. So first of all, the, the mustache that intrigues him. It's not like John said, huh, I could go home and do that. It's like he probably saw Anthony for two months and went, interesting. Yeah. He doesn't think of men with mustaches as commonplace. He just looks at this one mustache and goes, isn't that strange? Exactly. Again, <laughs> the strangeness could be partly from the fact that John may be high half the time these yeah. days. <laughs> and I wonder about her, her wording as a mustache that intrigues him. Is that John's word or is that Maureen's word? Mm. You know, Like to me, it reminds me of a child going up and looking at something curiously and then walking away, you know? Yeah, yeah. Rather than thinking, I'm going to get a mustache. Because I think Paul was the first one with a mustache. When he went traveling in France, remember he went traveling, yeah. uh, or maybe it was George in India, but, but Paul had one in the fall. And it is, it's a, it's later than, than this, um, yeah, but it is 66. And I think at first it was a false mustache that he'd had it made was. for the trip. <laughs> Which is hysterical, because how long would it take him to grow a mustache? <laughs> oh, dear. But, uh, okay, so the next bit here, he's very excited about <laughs> lunch. This I've is what I was I've never been to lunch to. before. What are you talking about? You've never had lunch in your life? <laughs> well, this is what I mean about John being an alien drop to earth, as yeah. in his first day wandering around in a chauffeur being like, interesting. <laughs> you know, and obviously, I think he's talking about the etiquette of a proper lunch. Sure, a society lunch, I guess. Yes, where, again, one gets a sense that, John is so disinterested in the way that everybody else lives. He'd have no clue. And then he'd ask, whereas Paul wouldn't ask. You know, it reminds me of um, Donovan talking about teaching them how to play the, the finger picking style mm. in, in India, where John actually asked Donovan and was a good student and, and learned Whereas Donovan said, Paul would just pass by them and look at what they were doing and then <laughs> create his own version. Like he is not going to actually admit ignorance. Yeah. He's going to suss it out. And this is yeah. John sort of admitting, I don't know how to do society lunch. Do you know? And yeah. there's something very sweet about that. Yeah, that's um, the very open side of him, isn't it? Whereas, yeah, the Paul's, uh, Paul's, kind of eyeing of it, it seems to imply a degree of suspicion on his part. Well, there's suspicion, but also, you know, Donovan said, well, Paul's a genius, you know, he could just figure it out. But there's competitiveness with Paul. I think yeah. he, you know, like in his article, he says he doesn't like to not know things. And so if he doesn't know how a lunch is done, he will circle it and figure it out mm, before he mm. goes. Whereas John would just admit, how does one do a lunch, you know? Yeah, that's right. It's like Paul's approaching, uh, I don't know, a, an exotic beast really carefully. And, and John's approach is just to walk straight up to 
<laughs> and then he seems to have done a dry run by himself saying he went to Lyons the other day and had egg mm. and chips and a cup of tea. And he seems to have gotten joy out of the fact that people weren't sure, you know, that must have mm. been a fun situation for him where they didn't think he could be there. And yet he is the center of attention. That's right. And and it also speaks to how observant he can be for someone who's also so self-centered. Um, you know, I think May Pang talks about how when he goes to restaurants, John is acutely aware of exactly how everyone in the room is reacting to his own presence. But that's the point we were discussing before. And I think that's important. I think part of this whole interview is manufactured. Mm. And that's the hard part is part of it is true. John is self-centered and childlike. But John is also the world's greatest performer, and he's brilliant. He knows what's charming to people, you know? Mm. Yeah, he certainly does. Yeah. settled himself into the car and demonstrated the television, the folding bed, the refrigerator, the writing desk, the telephone. Uh, the reason I like that is that the way she's written the sentence seems to imply that the television, the folding bed, the refrigerator, the writing desk, and the telephone are all in his car. <laughs> I think but she I means... Think it is. So he's, he's got a, a bed in the car and a fridge and a desk and a... T- Good Lord. Well, I don't understand it. I mean, I was like, did he just invent like a, a car of the 22nd century? I don't know. <laughs> it's because it seems to be a mobile home. <laughs> also, he's got a wireless phone, apparently. Yeah. Oh, my God. He spent many fruitless hours on that telephone. I only once got through to a person, he said, and they were out. <laughs> <laughs> I do know he did put a bed into his car. Okay. Uh, also, how big is this Rolls Royce? <laughs> well, it also had a record player in it, didn't it? Um, I, I don't understand this, uh, especially the phone thing. Mm. Does he just pull the phone from the house into his car? Because <laughs> <laughs> as far as I know, they did not have wireless phones in 1966. Yeah, I don't know. Yeah, if anyone had one, I suppose it would be John Lennon. He seems to have everything. Well, yeah, and at the end of it, she talks about the fact that in the, he's in his car with the television flickering too. So mm. I, I, I really don't know what to make of this. I mean, I, you know. Yeah, I've read descriptions of his car that talk about the knot of aerials that all sat on top of it. So maybe that suggests they are there to power the TV and the phone and the radio and all the other electronic <laughs> well, devices. Well, that would make sense. And if yeah. that's the case, it's like the gorilla suit or the mirrors on the bottom. John's such an original and he's so self-centered that he's like, these are the things I want in my world. I like to be in my car and I need a TV. And these are all the mm-hmm. things that basically he invents the modern car. Yeah, the car functions a bit like his special room or his bedroom at Weybridge, where he has to have all of his toys arranged around him for you know whichever one he might want to play with in a given moment. <laughs> And of course, he doesn't actually know how to operate them. <laughs> and this is something that persists as well. You read accounts that 
that people have written down about having gone to the Dakota in 1977 to, um, I don't know, fix uh, one of John's speakers. And he's got some $8,000 stereo and hasn't the faintest idea how to switch it on. <laughs> and they're still using a little tape recorder. <laughs> well, also, he has a bizarre fear of telephones. Have you heard about this? Like John's no. very, very afraid of telephones. And no. in the seventies, like he will not make calls. People have to call him and he has to work himself up for ages to use the phone. No, I didn't know that. <laughs> sure. But apparently in the sixties, he was trying to make phone calls that just wasn't <laughs> successful. <laughs> no, no wonder it's hilarious to imagine him without his glasses, getting on a plane to Paris. <laughs> He can't figure out a phone. Just the idea of him wandering around in a foreign country. It's I hilarious. know. It's a good thing he was a genius and the world's most charismatic person, because otherwise he would be a disaster. Yeah. But this, this goes, I think it builds the idea of John as genius. He's almost helpless in the world. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You imagine him at that lion's, at the point at which he had to pay for the egg and chips and tea, just sort of pulling a fistful of money out of his pocket and proffering it to the person, not knowing the faintest idea how much it cost. <laughs> There's no way John paid for it. I'm sure he sent a bill to Brian or something like that. But Paul is no better either. I mean, I think yeah. Paul signs stuff everywhere in France. To, yeah. to, to, to Brian Epstein. George is yeah. the only one who has money, and even then it's sewn into the soles of his shoes. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's fitting too, actually. I just want to point out that although we are highlighting some of John's helplessness, um, John is also savvy enough to get the best version of the biggest status symbol in the UK. Yeah, yeah very true. Anthony had spent the weekend in Wales. John asked if they'd kept a welcome for him on a hillside and Anthony said they had. They discussed the possibility of an extension for the telephone. We had to call at the doctors because John had a bit of sea urchin in his toe. Don't want to be like Dorothy Dandridge, he'd said, dying of a splinter 50 years later. He added reassuringly that he had washed the foot in question. <laughs> <laughs> Well, he's very clean, so that is good. You know what made me laugh is John's so delicate. It reminds me of in Get Back. Remember when they're all trying to juggle and within two seconds, you know, you see John taping up his rock and roll finger that he's cut. Like he's yeah. just, I can't imagine John on Paul's farm for like an no. hour even. No, he would be so out of place. It would be like an alien in an alien landscape. <laughs> We bowled along in a costly fashion through the countryside. Famous and loaded is how he describes himself now. 
They keep telling me I'm all right for money, but then I think I might have spent it all by the time I'm 40, so I keep going. That's why I started selling my cars. Then I changed my mind and got them all back, and a new one too. <laughs> oh my God. I love Famous and Loaded. Because yeah. the idea of like St. John Lennon, man of peace, you know, that doesn't care about possessions, that was something that he, you know, that was a concept that he aspired to. But really and truly, this is John Lennon in 1966 being very happy that he's famous and loaded. He is bragging about this. Yeah. You know, and this is John too. I don't mind this. All these guys came from nothing. They should be mm. able to celebrate the fact that they're famous and have lots of money and they feel good about it, you know? Yeah, yeah. You, uh, there's something about rock stars whereby you want them to enjoy their their wealth and um it's pleasing to read at least that ringo seems to be able to do that i like um the way we bowled along in a costly fashion through the countryside that's a wonderful sentence um you know what it so reminds me of have you, have you read um the wind in the willows yes then doesn't that remind you of John as a kind of Mr. Toad figure, <laughs> yes. getting carried away with his enthusiasms and driving off in a motor car, oh, absolutely. And maybe hitting someone on the way and saying, "Be oh, out of my way! I'm a motorist." <laughs> <laughs> that is absolutely John out of my way, and that's actually going to connect to a quote that I'm going to share at the end that I think is really similar by Andrew Lug Oldham. Okay. But I, I love the famous and loaded because th this is sort of arrogant John too. Mm. And I do like this John that's kind of just proud of the fact <laughs> that he is powerful. The yeah. fact that, and remember in the, um, the Ringo article, Ringo's like, I've got enough money. John is more ambitious, realizing that it may not be enough money. You know what I mean? Mm. Like when he's saying that he gets worried about this. Mm. And he says, they keep telling me I'm all right for money, but then I think I may have spent it all by the time I'm 40. So I keep going. That's mm. why I started selling my cars. Then I changed my mind and I got them back and a new one too. There's a, an insecurity, a financial insecurity. So he's just said that I'm famous and loaded and, and he wants to keep it that way. And so he's got to keep working to make sure that he stays famous and loaded and I refer to the St. Regis article because do you remember when they're talking about money and it's the most ridiculous part. John goes, um, he's talking about the fact that Paul's about to do a tour. This is in 1971 and Paul's about to start a tour. And John says that he's going to go to every city that Paul goes to and play for free next yeah, to him. Yeah. And, and, and accuses Paul of charging a million to see him when he's literally <laughs> charging 50p. It's so crazy. And then in the next sentence or two, John talks about how he needs money and that Alan Klein has made him secure about money and how much money matters to him. Mm. And again, he says to the world that he's going to put on a free concert next to Paul, who's charging a million, when in reality, Paul's the one that's practically giving away the concert and John's saying he's the one that needs to make money. You know, now, now this is this point is kind of undermined by the fact that Paul now charges a million for his concerts, but in yeah. those days, 
Yeah, it, it, it makes me think John has this tendency to look at what Paul's doing and then make this defensive claim, if I were going to do that, I would be much better at it. But he never actually does the thing. So like <laughs> no. John actually goes out on tour and does the free concerts, whereas Paul is actually doing the thing. <laughs> well, that's what I mean. Like Paul often walks the walk, you know. He yeah. actually d does go and live with no possessions and does mm -hmm. free concerts. Um, but I do think that John projects a lot onto Paul, too. But in the St. Regis, Yoko and John do spend some time. Like Yoko says that, yes, John's very insecure when it comes to money. And it's funny because the assumption is kind of that John is and Yoko isn't. And it's like, yeah, because Yoko comes from a filthy rich family, you know? Yeah. But, I like the fact that John isn't so worried about it that he doesn't just spend freely. <laughs> uh, it's good. I actually, I, I kind of admire it. I, I certainly admire it more than a miserly hoarding of riches. Like John isn't a prisoner of his own wealth in the way that some people might be if they were genuinely terrified of spending a cent and it all just sat there never being enjoyed <laughs> well yes but john is in his own crazy cycle of buying things returning things and then getting more and then regretting it so he's, two steps ex back. exactly <laughs> that he is in a spin but but this is also really important to know about john and so mm. i say this because this plays into alan klein because in saint mm. regis he says that Alan Klein makes him feel better and secure about money. Now, that was a bad mistake because Alan Klein turned around and sued them. But um, John felt like he did. But I think this also plays into John's actions in 1969, you know, where he overextends. He buys a bigger place and therefore he needs Alan Klein. You know what yeah. I mean? Like. John's a mess when it comes to finances. And again, no criticism because most rock stars are. But I think that we have to understand that that's also driving some of John's behavior, you know? Yeah. She said, I know what it's like to be I want the money just to be rich. The only other way of getting it is to be born rich. If you have money, that's power without having to be powerful. I often think it's all a big conspiracy that the winners of the government, people like us, have gotten all the money. That joke about keeping the workers ignorant is still true. That's what they said about the Tories and the landowners and that. Then Labour were meant to educate the workers, but they don't seem to be doing that anymore. Interesting contrast to working class hero John Lennon in oh, some ways. Oh, absolutely. Uh, yeah. yeah, absolutely. I had that written too. <laughs> that is really a theoretical concept and not reality when it comes to John Lennon, you know? Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's easy to be critical of imagine no possessions and, and compare it to a quote like, I want the money just to be rich. Um, it makes me think, though, he's not necessarily being hypocritical. Maybe it's more that he, he just tends to swing from one extreme to the other. And he genuinely believes um, oh, for sure. whatever thing he's in at the time, like that that line Absolutely. of hers about having the idea wrapped around his brain. It makes me think um, 
of Alan Klein again, because if you think about what was happening pre-Alan Klein, they, they had all these grand visions of yeah. Apple as this um, benign organization. And they, right, right. they even said things like, you know, we've made all the money that anyone could possibly ever need. So we've decided to give the rest away. And then after that idea doesn't really work and they get tired of it. The next thing they do is the polar opposite and they bring in the sharkiest shark that ever yeah. shocked to try and get them as much money as possible. I'm not necessarily critical of the imagined no possessions because John doesn't like the fact that he is insecure about money. It's, mm. it's a frustration to him. I'm sure that John does want to feel okay without any possessions. So I, I'm not critical of that. It's more the working class hero <laughs> that yeah. I think is, is the one that I'm kind of like, oh, John. But, but I think this line, I want the money just to be rich. The only other way of getting it is to be born rich. If you have money, that's power without having to be powerful. In some ways, I think that John's desire for money is for power. Mm. You know, and it makes me wonder, like thinking about um, Hunter Davies' book and all of his friends saying that he always, always had to be the top. He was so competitive. It makes me wonder if John felt very powerless or is afraid of being powerless at some point in his life. Yeah. You know? Do you think... Um... Power is also sort of synonymous with freedom in the way he thinks about things. A lot of people would talk about, you know, that what the money buys you is time or, or freedom or the fuck you money being, meaning yeah. that you're able to live entirely on your own terms and not be beholden to anyone or anything. Do you think Absolutely. that's kind of what he's talking about here? I do. Uh, although I get that sense a little bit more with Paula Ringo with John. Mm. You just think about this with John I get more the sense that it is comparative in some ways like there is okay. John is competitive with maybe the power reinforces the notion that he's special and that he can live in his bubble so yes it is a freedom to live to be <laughs> John Lennon yeah I don't, I don't know I, I'm sure it is in some ways Mm, it's a curious, a, yeah. I don't quite want, know what to make of it. I'm tempted to think, does he mean when he says power without having to be powerful, does he mean real power means not having to exercise that power all of the time? Absolutely. I think he means that. Yeah. I, I think he means not having to fight for anything that, mm. you know, he talks about some people being so rich, he doesn't even know where they are, mm. that, that, which is probably where John Lennon wants to be. Um, what he suggests later on, yeah. um, but this idea of being so powerful that you don't even need to play the game, that you don't have to fight for anything or play within the rules, you know? Yeah, very true. He has a morbid fear of stupid people. Famous and loaded as I am, I still have to meet soft people. It often comes into my mind that I'm not really rich. There are really rich people, but I don't know where they are. Hmm. Yeah, like there's some exclusive club that no matter how wealthy and famous he gets, he still is being denied access to. <laughs> right, right, right. And, and it's kind of like lunch. He's got a sense that there's another strata, but he hasn't yeah. quite cracked it yet. Yeah, you totally. know, but, but also he would like to crack it, you know, because Absolutely. he says here, he has a morbid horror of stupid people, famous and loaded as I am. I still have to meet soft people. Mm. So he would like to not have to <laughs> yeah, meet soft yeah, for people. Him, 
yeah, for him, fame, power, money, that what it translates to is being free of all obligation. <laughs> well, and it's an interesting one, this idea of like, why does he have a morbid horror of stupid people? You know, maybe because it's linked to what you say about you know, the worst thing to a beetle is when someone's boring. Is stupidity um, links to that? I think so. And I think it's also, I think that uh, John probably has a horror of being normal or average or ordinary. And, and he's not, you know, no. John is brilliant. But I, I, I think he probably doesn't like to be among them because that might reinforce that he's not special. I don't know. Yeah. I don't know why, 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 why this is where John's lack of empathy comes in. Whereas, and I hate to compare them, but Paul seems to have empathy for humankind. John has this morbid horror of stupid people. Maybe it's because he has a slightly sponge like personality. He, um, he, he, he sort of soaks up, energy and ideas and as we were saying earlier he he can universalize or popularize them in a very lenin-esque way but to be stuck in a room with stupid people would mean you're only kind of soaking up stupidity and becoming more stupid yourself yeah yeah and maybe it's frustration from his youth like being in school with a bunch of people who didn't really get him mm. and not being especially appreciated in that environment mm. I don't know. I don't know. But I, I like anytime it says he has a morbid horror of stupid people, that's something that he's reacting to, mm. you know, like it's not just a, I feel sorry for them, you know, and when I'm around them, I'm kind of bored. It's kind of like there's something that he's emotionally like, I don't want to be like that. There's something that he's doesn't like. Yeah. He finds being famous quite easy, confirming one suspicion that the Beatles had been leading up to this all their lives. Everybody thinks they would have been famous if only that had the Latin in that. So when it happens, it comes naturally. You remember your old granny saying soft things like, you'll make it with that voice. Not, he added, that he had any old grannies. <laughs> I think there's a reference, uh, it's quite a an embedded cultural reference to Peter Cook and Beyond the Fringe here. That's what he's referring to when he says, if only they'd had the Latin. Um, if listeners don't know this famous sketch from Beyond the Fringe with Peter Cook as a minor saying, I could have been a judge, but I never had the Latin. Uh, the first part of this, he finds being famous quite easy and confirming one suspicion that the Beatles have been leading up to this all their lives. I, I think that this is a good statement, but you also get this insight into John's mind that, you know, we've been talking about this the whole time, that I suspect that John has always been split in worrying about the fact that he's not normal and then loving the fact that he's not normal. Mm. And 
you know, for somebody who probably had to make sense of the fact that I don't live with my parents, and he was treated like something incredibly special by Mimi. Mimi plucked him, you know, and said, I want you to live here and indulged his creativity. And that's part of his identity too, is I am incredibly special. And, you know, all of his life, people probably said that about John. He was especially witty. Yeah. He was charismatic. And so I, I actually believe it when John gets famous that he's like, of course. Yeah, it makes me think of him as a, as a boy. Um, the point is made in Philip Norman's biography. Tell me if you agree with it, that far from nobody wanting John and him being abandoned as a child, almost the opposite was true, that there were so many parties vying to take custody of John, that everyone wanted John in their lives. Um, and that it was just sort of a, a peculiarity of John's to translate that uh, jealous guarding of, of custodyship as nobody wants me. Well, I, I agree with that. From the accounts, it does seem like his mother wanted him. His father tried to take him. And Mimi, like I said, I don't know if it had been a different child, if Mimi would have taken that child because Julia had another child and yeah. it was given up for adoption. You know what I mean? So I think that John was a special child, yeah. but certainly to him, from his perspective, his mother didn't fight hard enough for him. Mm. I kind of agree with Norman and I kind of don't because Julia could have fought harder mm. for him and said, absolutely not. I yeah. mean, you know, who knows in those days, maybe it wasn't so easy. Um, Alf could have found a place around the corner from him to make sure he was in John's life. Mm. But certainly he was desired. It's not like he was left on a doorstep and nobody wanted him. And Mimi said, okay. Mimi aggressively went after him because yeah. she thought that he deserved something better. But certainly to him, it would have seemed that way. There's no way yeah. that as a child, he would have internalized the fact that everybody wants me and I ended up in the best place, you know? Yeah, I, I agree to with Philip Norman to the extent that... Um, yeah, the different interests conflicted in terms of who was going to take care of John and everyone seemed to want to do it. Um, and that maybe the, the case that uh, Mimi, no, not me, sorry, Julia, Julia and Alf uh, were ill-prepared and maybe not yes, very irresponsible. good parents, yes. irresponsible parents. Yes. But John seems to then make the assumption that they therefore didn't want him. Yes. Um, and I think that that's maybe a leap too far. Yes and no. I, I do think that ultimately they didn't want him enough to step up and become responsible. But again, that has nothing to do with John himself. Mm. That has to do with them. Yeah. They were just not ready for, they were yeah. just not responsible enough to have a kid. Or, you know, if you hear from John's sister, Julia, she says that Mimi was too aggressive with taking John. And, and so that's a whole other thing. But from John's perspective, it certainly would have been that his parents didn't love him enough to fight for him, that he probably internalized that. You know, this is why John has to go through all the therapy for the rest of his life, is feeling like I'm not good enough. And then the other half of him feeling like I am special. Mm. And the fact that he does have that reflected back to him constantly, he is brilliant. I can understand why John ended up so confused. Yeah. You know, yeah. so confused. And he talks about Paul being much more stable than him. It's like, 
even though he knew he was special, he didn't have that and lovable, you know, and worth fighting for. I think he always wanted people, you know, and that potentially that's why he was so brokenhearted when Paul actually walked away. Because I'm sure that John spent his life wanting people to fight for him, which is what Yoko did. That's very true. That's also very perceptive. Yeah. Yeah. He got to the doctor two and three quarter hours early and to lunch <laughs> on time, but in the wrong place. <laughs> John. He bought a giant compendium of games from Asprey's, but having opened it, he could not, of course, shut it again. He wondered what else he should buy. He went to Brian Epstein's office. Any presents? He asked eagerly. He observed that there was nothing like getting things free. He tried on the attractive Miss Hansen's spectacles. <laughs> Again, this you get an image that John is a five-year-old wandering yeah. around, you know, having fun, looking for presents. And yeah. then, but, but that sounds kind of derogatory, but I, I mean it in the best way. In that it's kind of a joy being in John's world because he has fun everywhere he mm. goes. Yeah, it reminds me of even when he's 40, on his 40th birthday, Yoko presents him with this um, hand-knitted tie she's made, made him. And apparently his reaction is to be slightly bummed out that on his 40th birthday, this is his present, some hand-knitted tie. And then she, of course, presents him with a Patek Philippe watch and this diamond and ruby and sapphire encrusted American flag pendant. And then he's quite happy he has these <laughs> presents and there's photos of him sort of gleefully showing them off. And I always want to say, John, do you realize that you could go out and buy yourself any of these things anytime you want? <laughs> but that, that's not, not, a, not important. You know, he, he has to have them given to him as presents. Exactly. <laughs> and, and you know what? This is so human, too. It is fun to get things free. Of course and get it is. Wonderful things. And I also must say, I do absolutely understand getting to appointments at the wrong time at the wrong place and that makes me love john lennon yeah because no. you don't get the sense that he's like you know all business-like i mean this is very portrait of an artist that is generally clueless about the practicalities of life yeah totally and it is endearing as you say it um it makes you like him more not less Yes, and he tries on the attractive Miss Hansen spectacles. <laughs> Again, it's like this is how John flirts. You mm. know, he's kind of playful with people and, mm. you know. And and there's that slightly provocative thing too because you're taking somebody's glasses and, and trying them on, that, that that is a slight invasion of personal space. Oh, totally. And like yeah, totally. The, it, it, there's, there's something, yeah, it's intimate and it's slightly threatening, but in a way that some people at least would find turns them on, I guess. Oh, yeah, definitely. Because he would do it in a playful way, you know? Yeah. It reminds me of what we read last time about how he would go across the floor and then touch Maureen and give her an electric shock. Yeah, you yeah. Know, Taking but... her coat and putting it in the waste paper basket. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Um, the rumor came through that a beetle had been sighted walking down Oxford Street. He brightened. One of the others must be out, he said, as though speaking of an escaped bear. We only let them out one at a time, said the attractive Miss Hanson firmly. <laughs> <laughs> it's always hard days nightish, isn't it? Oh, it's um, totally. It's but, like, but, but, okay. No, no, no. Just like the manager they have in that film who treats them like prisoners. <laughs> 
And I, sometimes when I was younger, I, when I watched Han Dae-san, I would get angry at the way that manager would boss them around. And I would want to like intervene in the scene and say, do you realize that you work for them and not the right, other way right, around? Right. Right, right. Except for then you read the paragraph that says that he got to the doctor two and, two and three quarter hours early and lunch on time, but in the wrong place. And you kind of think, maybe it's good that they have these people bossing them around. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. But, uh, you know, this idea of one of the others must be out, as though speaking of an escape there. That has always stayed with me, that mm. sentence. Because even though John's in his little bubble, there is a kinship with the other Beatles. Like he's excited by hearing about one of the other Beatles out there. It's kind of like John couldn't care less about anybody except the other Beatles. Yeah. And then he's excited about it. You yeah. know what I mean? The only people that he's interested in are the other Beatles. And I love yeah. that. And it's also vaguely childlike to assume that because a report had come through that a Beatle was on Oxford Street, that it must therefore be true. There's no possibility that it was just a guy with a mop top haircut. <laughs> right. It must have been Paul. Sitting in his nowhere land, making all his nowhere plans for nobody. Oh dear. Okay, well we're nearly at the end. Okay. Um he said that to live and have a laugh were the things to do, but was that enough for the restless spirit? Weybridge, he said, won't do it all. I'm just stopping at it like a bus stop. Bankers and stockbrokers live there. They can add figures and Weybridge is where they live and they think it's the end, they really do. I think of it every day, me and my Hansel and Gretel house. I'll take my time. I'll get my real house when I know what I want. Ah, oh, this is one of the most interesting paragraphs in this entire article. First of all, John is able, without the slightest effort, to match the quality of Maureen Cleave's own metaphors and descriptions. I mean, she does a really good thing. She does it very well when she talks about the house being mock Tudor and she makes the comparison to Henry VIII. Mm. This shows what a great writer she is. Mm -hmm. But then John can casually refer to his Hansel and Gretel house. And you think that metaphor is actually better. It's more revealing. And now I can't look at mm -hmm. that house without thinking of it as a Hansel and Gretel house. It's just such a perfect description. But it's also very childlike too, yeah, you know, in yeah, the way that yeah. John loves his um, Alice through the looking glass, you know, yeah. it's absolutely perfect. And I love this phrase, I'll get my real house when I know what I want. The mm -hmm. word that really is written in neon in that sentence to me is real. Real, exactly. Um, John seems to have this obsession with either truth or reality. And sometimes he was obsessed with the opposite, like Strawberry Fields, Nothing is Real. Mm -hmm. But he also sang a song about how important real, real love, love was. Yeah. So, yeah, real to him is a very particular, it's a word that does a lot of heavy lifting in his vocabulary in the way that the word little has, does a lot of heavy lifting in Paul's vocabulary. Paul has this tendency to, um, I don't know, it's, it's hard to know, quite how to describe it even miniaturize yeah yeah i mean um paul likes to de-emphasize the weight of things yes through using the word little to take their edge off whereas yeah. john likes to emphasize their weight 
to reassure himself of their solidity or their permanence. And he does it in words like true and real. Yeah. Yeah. Give me some truth, Mr. Real Love. Yes, for sure. I mean, again, we're talking about somebody who's doing a ton of acid at this time. And so there (laughs) is, and he's living in this extremely unreal world. But, you know, this idea of a restless spirit is that I think what John is looking for is some groundedness, a feeling of being solid and home. Yes. You know, and and that's what he doesn't feel here. And it doesn't have anything to do with the house. Mm. It's the fact that he isn't comfortable with himself, probably. Mm. And, mm. and you know what? He's 25. Like, in part of this, part of this is meaningful. And part of this is not meaningful to me in that he's 25 years old. He probably should not be thinking of this as where he's going to spend the rest of his life. Yeah. You know what I mean? Like all the Beatles should be thinking like, great, this is where we're going to live for now, you know, and, yeah. and we will grow and expand. And so I, I don't actually take it as meaningfully as some people, Paul and George and both of theirs talk about what they're going to do next as well. This is not unique mm. to John, mm. but I do think you're right to, to talk about that real house like the house that will be meaningful and truthful and the thing that is me and and remember how um in Ringo's we talked about how he liked the look and feel of his place apparently John didn't really like the look of how they had decorated his place like it wasn't him but there's a sense that John doesn't really know himself or what he likes yet and the next paragraph about that's why he's experimenting and exploring. And, and I kind of think, good. Again, you're 25. You've been on tour for the past like seven years. Maybe you do need to spend some time just getting to know yourself. In some ways, they've created this massive amount of work. And, and I actually think that John hasn't had the time to figure out that what he's doing is important. It's somewhere yeah. out there. You know, it's like what he's going to do is out there. His real house is out there. It's, hmm. You know what I mean? Yeah, I know. But but also this, this um, compulsion to believe that there is some sort of holy grail waiting around yes. a corner if he could only find the right corner and grab it. Um, yeah, sometimes I want to tell John, I don't know that it's there, mate. I don't know that, you know, the inside the chapel perilous of rock and roll, there is such a thing as truth or reality if you haven't discovered it yet. It's like John wanting to get the answer from the, the Maharishi. Um, and then deciding Yoko's the answer. That's and, right, yes, that's right. Like... And, and, and I want to say, John, there is no answer. There's only different ways of asking questions. Yeah, you think that eventually he figures out that it's, it's kind of, he's kind of running from himself. Like hmm. if he feels stable then everything around him is actually stable. And when he says real love, that's probably an important statement is that he recognizes that that was real love. You know, he was always looking for a different love, mm. but what he had was real, that the, the community he had was real, that his life there was real. Yeah. And so when people read this and sort of say, well, you know, John wasn't happy there. Well, this is whole John's life. Is, he's is, always in this, in this he's position. He's always in this yeah. mode, yes. Yeah. 
you know, then he and Yoko moved to um, Tittners and they're only there for a bit. And then they moved to St. Regis. They live in a yeah, hotel, yeah. which is impermanent. And they moved to the village and that's impermanent. And, and then he's constantly moving with May Pang. Mm. So it's, it's really lit. I think he just needs to find some permanence and some groundedness in himself. But on the other hand, I do understand why John Lennon would be like, I mean, he's he's an incredible creative source. I, I get it why he would be like, well, this isn't the end for me. One should hope not, you know? Yeah. But as much as I say all this, you know who never friggin' moved from their place? Paul McCartney. Paul McCartney <laughs> buys his place and he's that still is. there. <laughs> So John is always fleeing, trying to find stability. And I don't know, Paul is, Paul's got his own issues that Paul mm. in some ways needs permanence to feel stable, you mm. know? And sometimes I get the idea that with Paul, even when he, he tries to motivate himself to, to do something that's um, new and unexpected, he ends up recreating something that already exists like they move out of the waterfalls house in surrey and he decides to build this new family house but what he builds is kind of like a slightly grander version of his old family's house from liverpool it looks like a, a big two up two down <laughs> i know well again paul and his money issues is a doubt <laughs> that requires some deep analysis but um but yeah, this is John's issue. But then there's the next bit. Did you read this last bit? Do you want to read this last bit? Yeah, well, we've only got a tiny bit to go, so let me get there. You see, there's something else I'm going to do, something I must do, only I don't know what it is. That's why I go around painting and taping and drawing and writing and that, because it may be one of them. All I know is this isn't for me. Anthony got him in the compendium into the oh, car and drove let, him home. Let's actually, Sorry. let's actually stop there because okay. that's an important statement, I think. Mm. Um, so this idea of this feeling that he must do something else. This is about purpose. And I suspect, I was thinking about this, this need to do something great in the world. You know, he talks later in Plasticono Band about how his childhood issues made him feel like he had to be famous and has something to prove. I get the sense that he has a desire to do something great to prove yes. himself in the world. Yes. And that's an underlying driver here that he wants to both be recognized as being lovable and, and his worth uh, to be seen, but also because he's special, he probably thinks he has to do something big and special. Yeah. You know? And there's a pattern of that in the way he talks about his own creative projects. Um, and I think double fantasy is particularly well documented. Um, you read Kenneth Womack's uh, Last Days of John Lennon book, you, you get a strong sense of someone who believed passionately that this was going to be the great project that would redefine everything. It would launch Yoko. It would bring him back. Uh, it was going to be this extraordinary heart play between two geniuses. No one had ever done that before. And then when the album is made and it comes out, his own pronouncements on it, at least the private, more private ones, seem to be mildly disappointed, not just with the critical reaction, but with the artistic achievement. Yes. Like he listened to um, Bruce Springsteen's album, The River, and said, well, that's better than Double Fantasy. 
Yeah. Well, and that's the thing about John and his enthusiasm is that, you know, it's it's part of what propels him to be an incredible artist. And you see yeah. that with Paul, too. You know, Paul, Paul thought Press to Play was going to be the best album ever. <laughs> but there's always this sense of it has to have deeper meaning. Mm. It can't just be a work of art. It has for John. He almost needs to have this like it's going to do something in the world. Yeah. You know, that it's going to, it's bigger than me. Mm. I can see how John and Yoko had this connection because I, I think John and Yoko were very similar in some ways. Mm. And, but Yoko was good at framing the art they were doing and the political activism as something that was meaningful and big in the world. And kind of unfortunately diminishing some of the, um, work that he was doing with the Beatles and Martin Carr, when I was speaking to him, like he, he, he circled this issue a couple of times. He found it curious that they, the Beatles made fun of the, um, Beatlemania, um, songs that he was like, they kind of make fun of those. Like they're not real art. You know, he, he's like the, every time they talk about those, they make fun of them. It's like the pre Beatles stuff was, they take seriously and the post touring stuff they take seriously. But I think there's something about it being so commercially massive that maybe they it made it seem not legitimately artistic. Mm. And maybe they wrote it so quickly and so on demand, like it was just like being manufactured that maybe it didn't seem like it was real art. But one gets the sense when you read this that John doesn't recognize the meaning and the artistry of what he's doing right now because of his desire to do something meaningful and and this idea of what I'm doing right now isn't it right yeah I know I think it's a shame that he took that turn against uh, the Beatles own work um, because I, I completely agree with what you're saying about how I mean you, you weren't saying it directly but I get the sense that you're implying that uh, something that is hugely commercially successful shouldn't necessarily be considered lesser than because it has that quality to it. Well, that's, exa I, that's exactly I completely what I completely agree. Yeah, <laughs> yeah that, completely that agree. almost that it, the, the commercial success of the Beatles almost undermined their view of the artistic integrity of it. Mm. Like it. Yeah, Yoko certainly reinforced. A, uh, she drove a wedge between um, art and, I suppose, entertainment yes. in in the way John thought about these things. That's right. And, and a that shame because, them. yeah, uh, uh, to me, it's a shame because John's music is at his best when it does both of these things at the same time. That's right. That's right. And, and I don't judge John for not recognizing that what they were doing was meaningful, but I mm. can see how Yoko coming in and saying, well, there's other things that we can do. And, and I don't want to judge which is more meaningful, but one can see the attraction of Yoko and John both being idealists. And, you know, that period didn't last for very long. It's really two or three years. But at least maybe he felt like I did something in the world. Anthony got him in the compendium into the car and drove him home with the television flickering in the soothing darkness while the Londoners outside rushed home from work. There's a couple of things about it that I think are interesting and perceptive of Cleve for having written that phrase with the television flickering in the soothing darkness, suggest, it's kind of leisurely written. There's a sort of um, listless meandering quality to what she's describing or the way John 
is living his life yeah in contrast to yes. commuters in london rushing home so right. it's all about the difference between how john lennon lives and how most ordinary people live um but i think what's kind of implied in there as well is the londoners rushing home from work might think all of the things that john lennon has or has achieved are what they might be striving for to be able to get out of this rat race but john lennon who's not part of this rat race now leads this sort of listless life as a result and it, it's not this holy grail that you might think it is that seems to be in the background of what she's saying there too yeah this is a really incredible ending to this this profile is one gets the sense that john is lonely mm. you know they're all rushing home to, to something, be with somebody to and, be with and, something and to the warmth john, exactly. john is avoiding going home if anything yes like it cuts a very lonely figure of john mm in a car with the TV flickering, you know, distracting him. I, I, I find it very sad, actually, mm, to mm. a profile that overall isn't sad to me. Because John, at this point, is still brash and on a bit of a high. But yeah. she ends on an issue for John in that John is in his own little bubble. But that's a double-edged sword, is that he is alone. Mm. you know, alone and secluded from the world. And that's kind of lonely. Yeah. And you're right. It's like, John isn't alone. John has a son and a wife that's at home. He has a big house. He could be the exact same situation as Ringo. And yet he's not, mm. you know? Yeah, it's a very downbeat ending and an unresolved ending. Very unresolved. I kind of feel buoyed and John's very funny and childlike, mm. but then it ends on them this very kind of sad note, unresolved. Mm. And, and literally you get the dot, 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 mm. Yoko based, mm. based on that because John is alone in his bubble. He loves the Beatles. He wants to be in the gorilla suits running around with them, but they're not game to do this. And the only person he truly sees as his intellectual equal is Paul. Mm. Paul, as she points out, is not playing with John. He's off doing his own thing. Yeah. John needs somebody. Yeah. You know? Yeah, I, I certainly do see the dot, 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 Yoko side of things. And interesting that you mentioned the gorilla suit as well. Because uh, if the Beatles weren't interested in getting into a gorilla suit and driving around in a Ferrari, it's something that Yoko would do. It is something um, I mean, do. I could totally imagine an alternate universe in which that was one of their avant-garde projects. If it wasn't bagism, <laughs> then guerrillaism might have been the thing. If they could have filmed it, they would have done it. Exactly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, exactly. Like, remember, they go, they go with the hot air balloon. Yeah. And uh, But the important thing for both of them is that it was being filmed, you know, mm. that it was being recorded. But he needed somebody, like, when Cynthia was looking back at 1968, she made the point that John was looking for somebody who would be his companion, who was as close to a mate as possible. Mm. And, you know, that in a way is a very sexist way of saying, you know, that he's looking for an equal and, and a, a playmate. And the only person who believes they're as rarefied and unique in this world is Yoko Ono. <laughs> and so she is kind of the, the perfect um, match to him. And she was up for anything. Paul could have been this person 
But Paul doesn't seem to be interested in doing this. Paul is off doing his own thing. We do know from this this profile, John seems on a high. He's flirtatious. He's confident. He's loaded. And one gets a sense that life is an adventure with John, mm. you know, from this until this final bit. But at some point, one gets the sense that John is going to crash, mm. you know, and he needs somebody there with him. And we do know from the interview that he gives to Miles that he talks about going through murder it suggests that there is, he was going through a period of being down when Paul was not around. And so I, I don't necessarily want to connect it to Paul, but but it, Paul is conspicuously absent here. Mm. Yeah. And she mentions his absence once or twice, but the absence is some ways even more pronounced when he isn't mentioned. Like when that paragraph I alluded to earlier, when every other beetle and spouse is referred to as dropping in or dropping out or John dropping in on them and Paul's name just doesn't appear. Right. And I think the, the old school jean jacket would say, well, it's cause you know, Paul doesn't matter to John, but given the fact that John talks about Paul as being his metaphorical spouse for the rest of his life. And, you know, in this article, when he's talking about this depressive period, the person he alludes to is Paul. Mm -hmm. And then he says that Yoko came around and saw him and said, and so she became the answer. And so what he was looking for is somebody to see him and to recognize him. Yeah. I think that John probably has great highs and great lows. Mm. And I think when he's the center of attention of a reporter, especially a reporter that's as attractive and talented and smart and fun as, as Maureen Cleave, he probably was enjoying this. But the minute that she is just observing him and pulling away when it's just John, you know, he talked about the depressive time being when the cameras are off him. And that's the sense that I get at that final, final end, you know? Yeah. Yeah. Maureen Cleave seems to function for John in the way that a camera crew would in 1969. Yeah. Exactly. I, I can see how when Yoko came in that she fulfilled a need for, for him to try and find himself, you know, mm. like she was willing to go and do Janov and that he wrote Plastic Ono Band and, you know, the really deep dive into his childhood. Like he almost needed to do that mm. to reconcile or try to try and ground himself. Mm. But at the same time, what they did do also is they distanced themselves from the Beatles community. And John likes being special, but he also likes being part of the Beatles. Like that's yeah. part of his community. And he was pulled away from that. And I think that mm. that was problematic. Yeah. Okay. Now, having finished all that, what are your like final thoughts on this piece and what it says about John? Good question. And it's hard for me to come up with a, a quick answer to that. I think like you, I get a sense of the majority of the article painting a picture of somebody who has 
intense enthusiasms, even if they may be a little bit shallow and brief, and he hops from one to the other. I get the impression of someone whose head is turned quickly by the next shiny thing. Um, and that there's a sort of a childlike quality to that, or that's maybe part of the Henry VIII quality. Mm -hmm. And then at the end, it's like all of the, the stuffing has been removed from this person. They're, they're kind of hollowed out. And it, it seems to be at the very end, less a, a portrait of John Lennon and more um, Maureen Cleave herself watching him receding into the distance and wondering whether she gets him at all. Um, do you get a sense of that? Absolutely. It's an interesting point. She starts the article with fame and then she goes on this adventure with John. And, and then, like you said, that she's pulling away and observing him again. At, at once he was noble for her and then she's, she's just watching him. You do get a sense that he is a little bit unknowable that Lennon phrase about the eye of the hurricane seems kind of relevant too. And Weybridge would be like the, the kind of still center and then going to Asprey's or going into NEMS or whatever, that's like the sort of hurricane environment. And now this is that still moment when the hurricane has passed and you're kind of left standing there as the person who had just experienced it all, wondering what to make of it all and, and where to go from here. Yeah, it's such an interesting way to end the article. This is John when he is full of swagger and confidence, at least when talking to her, you know, when he's proud to be loaded and famous, and he, he's very comfortable with his elevated iconic status. I read this and think it's a grand adventure, but you do also get this sense that John is... Um, is restless and he's barreling on. Remember how we talked about the wind in the willows, Mr. Toad in, in, in his car? And I, I mentioned this quote by Andrew Luke Oldham because I think it's interesting. It's from his book, Rolling Stone from 2011. And I think he definitely overstates his importance to John. So, you know, we'll just ignore that. But he said, I never knew John Lennon very well, but the times I spent with him were perhaps a mind mapping experience for both of us. He looked, I floated, I looked, he floated. I could sit next to him in a cab or a club and regardless of whatever war we were both fighting at that time, I found peace around him and I think it was mutual. Oh, I had laughs with him. But in his physical presence, I breathed a sigh of relief. Around John, life was always easy. Paul has always been another chapter. His curiosity was honed and skilled. He didn't, like Lennon or me, crash his way through life's high street. John and I scattered broken dreams in our wake in order to preserve our own reality. At once innocent and crafty, Paul never seemed to realize he was center stage, which he always was. And perhaps that was his saving grace for his sanity as the world smothered the Beatles with its approval. And, you know, it's interesting to compare Paul and John, and we'll talk about Paul in his profile. But I do find what he says about John, he says that he and Lennon crashed their way through life's high street and they scattered broken dreams in their wake in order to preserve their own reality. And I do get a sense of that, that it's a grand adventure, but John is barreling through life and trying to like the, trying to keep things exciting. And that last scene gives me the sense that when he stops, that that's maybe where there's 
loneliness. And so I love this article because it gives us John on the high. And I think that's real John too. But then there's this other side when the music stops, when he's alone, when he's, he's not on camera. And that to me is the John that you see in his, his roles with the TV flickering at the end. I agree. And I said earlier that I think um, in this article, Maureen functions much like yes. the camera that John performs at or for and which yes. um, fuels his energy. Maybe she is perceptive enough here to realize that in his car sort of trailing away into the distance, because she's no longer there to provide that function, his personality is kind of flipping over to its other side. I think she is. I think that's what she's saying. Because she didn't say John barreled off in his roles off to his next adventure. She paints a lonely portrait. It's kind of like a child on their own eventually is unhappy. And there, there is a very childlike side to John that's both so endearing, but also is his vulnerability. Yeah. And it's, it's sweet. It actually, it makes me like John that... Um that it's not enough for him to enjoy something. He wants to share that enjoyment with others. I think that's quite a, a lovely impulse, but it also yeah. makes him a, little, a, bit, a bit more of a tragic figure, perhaps. There's and something quite innocent about his enthusiasms, um, even if you might think that that innocence translates to naivete in the way that Gloria Emerson does. That's right. The Lenin that appeared in 1969 was a little bit more condescending. Like, even though John's running around and saying ridiculous things like, you know, I'm rich and loaded and, you know, I don't want to talk to soft people, you get, you get the sense that John is just kind of silly. Whereas John is really taking himself seriously. And I, and I, 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 I admire the fact that he's talking about a serious issue, which is peace. I, in that interview, I, I find it difficult not to, not to see it from both their perspectives. Yeah. I see that, that John is being um, a little bit either innocent or naive, naive if you yeah. want to be critical. Um, and she's being perhaps a little bit uh, condescending or arrogant um, in return. And yeah, it's, it's a challenging scene to watch, but it's a fascinating scene to watch as well. I think that John did not change as a person, but I think his outward persona changed a little bit. The John Lennon that you meet here, you'd want to hang out with. Like, I feel like John Lennon's life is groovy and it's mm. fun. And he's running around and exploring lunch and has <laughs> Sydney in gorilla suits and, you know, hanging with the guys and playing music like that world seems fun whereas the john lennon that you meet in 69 is kind of like i know what's best and it is a little bit sanctimonious yeah i do know what you mean um and maybe this isn't the best word for it but sometimes when i watch footage of, of john circa 69 70 a, a word that i want to use for his behavior is spiky there just seems to be something spiky about him to me oh yeah there's a defensiveness about John in 1968, 69, 70 mm. that there isn't here. Like this is John with swagger. Yeah. And I think you talked about how the softness of his features makes him potentially more accessible or likable. But I think yes. that's reflected in his personality as well. Yes. 
Yes. So later on, when he's lost weight, there's also something sort of harsher and, and more angular about his behavior that there isn't here. Well, I think something triggered John. Something in, in 1968 triggered John, whatever it was. And after that, he always had this defensiveness. And then John and Yoko, you know, they had to deal with so much negative press that, you know, exacerbated it. And then the peace movement, then it became, a you know, them and us. And, you know, as we said at the beginning, John has not had a big failure or a big backlash yet. This is before the bigger than Jesus. You're... He hasn't felt the backlash yet. Mm, yeah, that's a very good point. He hasn't felt um, threatened or wounded by the, the circling wolves yet, whereas later on he's had a couple of experiences of that. And so, yeah, he, he can get into a, a spikier or more defensive mode as a result. Yeah, but I do want to point out that the spikiness of John did not really appear until 68, until mid 68, because everybody around John in 67 said that he was very happy. So I think the spikiness came later and I think something else triggered it. But then, you know, this could be playing into that. All of these issues um, came to play. I really love this, John Lennon. Just a curious open original person like this is how i see john in this period arrogant but also very generous without the spikiness do you see that that john lennon re-emerges in 73 or is that another john altogether i think that he's lost a little bit of his innocence at that time but he loses some of his defensiveness and regains a little bit of softness at that point And so it could be the combination of John and Yoko too. They're both hugely idealistic. And so they do good together, but they also, you know, maybe Pang talks about the fact that they also get uniquely paranoid together and see it as the world versus them. What do you think? Yeah, well, I I asked the question because I had a sense that... um... The I would more say that accessible gregarious John of 1973 has more in common with this 1966 John than he does with the John and Yoko love story. Well, it's not pronounced in John's article, but she does make the point that they're going to Ringo's, that there's all this interaction, and she makes the point that they're better friends than ever. And so even though that's not a dominant part of this article, it's there, that they're closer than ever. And as we said with Ringo, Ringo sees his place as the drummer. I think John's self-identity is so wrapped around the Beatles, you know, this the, the John Lennon character. And for that, he needs the other Beatles, you know? And it would be hard to overstate the closeness of Paul and John. Even though Paul's not around, I think that emotionally they feel so close. And I think that that was very hard on both of them to have been ripped apart. And that's part of the spikiness. They must have felt very alone in the world without each other. Yeah, sure. I do get a sense that they define uh, a lot of who they are in comparison to the other. Yes, exactly. And the friendships, she sort of mentions quickly and then moves on. But I think it underpins the John Lennon of 1966 is his community. Mm. And I think that it was important to John. And it maybe was underestimated how important to John's sanity 
was having his community, his role in the gang. Mm. Um, and when he didn't have that, it probably made him feel much more insecure, you know, like that, that foreshadowing of John alone in his car, it cuts a very wow. lonely figure and you want his little beetle buddies to be around him. And I mean, maybe another two factors, uh, the death of Brian, yep. the introduction of Alan Klein, the rejection of Alan Klein by Paul. And so John being John would get more defensive, but right. in a spiky, insistent yeah, 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 way. Yeah. Um, and then throwing heroin into the mix. Well, there, you've got you've got a, the ingredients for a big personality change. <laughs> well, also, also, if feeling like if he's losing power, that's a problem too for John. Absolutely. You know, I think he feels like he's losing power in the relationship with Paul, feeling unappreciated, or maybe he doesn't have Paul's eyes on him as much as he used to. You know, this is the period when John talks about he's going through murder, and Paul was full of confidence. And as we said, they measure their lives around the other and what the other is doing. John didn't say, I was going through murder and George was fine and Ringo was with his wife. He mentions Paul. That's who he measures his life against. It's a really, really fascinating time to be looking at John. Yeah, it really is. I find it challenging to be able to wrap it all up neatly into a couple of sentences. And yeah, I find John more hieroglyphic and challenging. Um, I think you're probably better at, um, at intuiting elements of him than I am. Well, I've spent a lot more time doing that, first of all, but so it's, not, I don't... it's not necessarily intuition. It's actually, you know, knowledge and analysis <laughs> as well. Yes, it, it could be that. Um, but, but also I, I don't necessarily think that's true. So to bring it back to the question you asked, what are you left with at the end of this article? Yeah. I mean, if I, I scrolled back in our notes to the end of the Ringo one. It ends yeah. with this very reassuring statement about yeah. how secure you feel in Ringo's company. Yeah. You, then you read the end of the John article and I, I don't get nearly the same sense of reassuring statement. I just get this sense of um, a lack of certainty. Yeah. From this interview, I get the sense that John is a force of nature. And yet I also get the sense that John is vulnerable because he is so needy. He needs attention. He's so fascinating and so vulnerable at the same time. That's what I end up with. Yeah, interesting. I do get a sense of that too. I like just having this snapshot. This is him being happy with being rich and loaded. And it also shows that John Lennon was not this Saint John. John was human and he was interesting and he evolved and he wasn't perfect. Yeah, I was listening to somebody talking about the process whereby heroes become deified. They talked about how there's this kind of cleansing quality to anyone who's elevated to hero status. God, that happened to John too, didn't it? But it, it really makes them did. less interesting as a result. It did remove the, the John Lennon that is fascinated and childlike and wants a mirror on the bottom of his pool. And that yes. is just so much fun. Like John yeah. Lennon that would write, I am the walrus. But also you the know? vulnerable John, that's not present when he becomes the working class hero. Yeah, it might be more impressive in, yes. in one sense, but it's... Um, you can't connect to it as much. So I find it, um, I find no, it less I can't interesting. Either. 
I do too. I do too. And, and this is why this, this article is interesting. I love John at this time, even though he's politically incorrect. I love the fact that he keeps growing. I love the fact that he ends up at every appointment at the wrong time in the wrong place and uh, spends lots of money on, on things he loves. I totally agree. There are places I remember Well, Duncan, I guess this brings our discussion to a close. Thank you so much for being here. My pleasure. I look forward to the next installment of the series. Who is it next? I think George. And then Brian. I can't wait. Thanks, Duncan. Thank you. Bye-bye. Some are dead and some are living. And that concludes our discussion about Maureen Cleave's profile on John Lennon. I have a few host notes as a follow-up to our discussion. First, about John's car. I did a little digging about John's roles following our conversation to figure out whether John really did have a James Bond car of the future or whether cars at that time were more advanced than I had assumed. Turns out that Rolls-Royce was quite impressively advanced at that time, but also John was typically bold and inventive with his modifications. Since we raised the subject, I'm going to provide a little more information on this vehicle. There was a good article about it in Rolling Stone magazine. So a little bit of history. First, it's currently housed in a museum in Vancouver. According to this article, John supposedly ordered the Phantom 5, upgrading from his previous Rolls Royce to supposedly outdo Brian with his new Bentley and to show the world that they had made it. Who knows whether the competition with Brian was true, but nevertheless, I do think John choosing the best car in the world shows how keenly aware of power and status John could be. When he bought this vehicle, he did not actually have a license. He said, I'd never bothered because I wasn't very interested in driving, but when the others passed their tests, I thought I'd better do it or I'd get left. As I mentioned in our discussion, the vehicle sounds enormous, which it actually was. It measured an astonishing 19 feet, 10 inches long and six feet, seven inches wide and weighed nearly three metric tons. It included every factory option and extra, including things like black leather upholstery, a cocktail cabinet, a per dio portable television. There was also a refrigeration system contained in the trunk. It also was one of the first cars in England to be outfitted with one-way passenger windows made of darkened triplex deep light glass. At that time, Lennon said that there were multiple reasons for getting this. He said, people think they've got black windows to hide. It's partly that, but it's also for when you're coming home late. If it's daylight when you're coming in, it's still dark inside the car. You can just shut all the windows and you're still in the club. So um, I guess this was bought for John's partying lifestyle at the time. 
In December 65, he actually overhauled the vehicle, submitting a seven-page list of alterations. What resulted from this overhaul was a modified back seat that converted into a double bed with oversized ashtrays added to the armrests. On-demand music was available from state-of-the-art Philips floating record player. A Philips tape player was also added in a specially built cabinet, as well as a sterno radio telephone. Um, and apparently the telephone packs and batteries were so large in those days that they took up almost the entire boot, I guess, with the refrigeration system. The television set was upgraded to a more modern Sony TV, but apparently reception was poor and it rarely worked. So there you go. Phones and TVs in cars were things in 1966. If you could afford a Rolls, anyway. Apparently, one of John's favorite toys was the loud hailer speaker, which he used to confuse the public. Paul commented on this in anthology, saying that they often had fun in the car. He said, and I quote, After recording sessions at two or three in the morning, we'd be careening through the villages on the way to Weybridge, shouting way and driving much too fast. George would perhaps be in his Ferrari. He was quite a fast driver. And John and I would be following in his big Rolls Royce. John had a mic in his Rolls with the loudspeaker outside, and he'd be shouting, It is foolish to resist pullover. Paul said, it was insane. All the lights would go on in the houses as we passed. It must have freaked everybody out. Why Paul was going to Weybridge at two or three in the morning is unclear, but it is an amusing incident. He also talked about how they would troll their paranoid friends like Brian Jones with the loudspeaker. Paul also said that John virtually lived in his roles. By 1967, of course, John had decided to do away with the black everything design, and in a major act of subversion and artistry, he had it repainted with a psychedelic design, making it one of the world's most famous cars. So, in actuality, John's choice of vehicle highlights a lot about John's character. It reflects his need to assert status and power. It indicates his need for cocoon-like comfort and protection. His modifications reflect his willingness to demand the best and indicates how able he is to get his needs met. He isn't quite as helpless as he appears. His infamous paint job reflects his willingness to go big with an artistic statement. I don't think Lennon is unaware of appearances, although I agree that he probably was too self-involved and too arrogant to keep up appearances on a regular basis. I think the reality is he is very aware of them and is often rebelliously willing to challenge them or subvert them. And it is this boldness of his acts, such as repainting the ultimate symbol of British elegance in a brilliant psychedelic manner that makes him so iconic. My second note is about Cynthia Lennon. In discussion with Duncan, I commented on the fact that Cynthia wasn't very present in the interview, perhaps because John wanted Maureen's attention all to himself. But she certainly is fully present in the next year when Hunter is the interviewer. Anyway, despite her absence in the interview, I wanted to acknowledge that she was a major presence in John's life until they separated in 1968. I believe her role and importance in John's life has been wildly underrepresented. 
The John that we meet here is able to be so amusingly cocky and open, partly because of the structure that supported him at this time. And a big part of that was Cynthia. Although Cynthia may not have been willing to accompany John on his psychedelic adventures, she herself was artistic, intelligent, and self-possessed, which I'm sure was hugely essential to the emotionally volatile John. I sometimes wonder if she deeply understood his insecurities and mental instability, something that I think Yoko intuitively understood better because I think she and John were simply more similar in that regard. But Cynthia did accept him for who he was. And Cynthia and Julian were a big part of John's life at this time in 66. In fact, a couple of years earlier in 1964, John commented to 16 Magazine that he tried to take Cynthia everywhere he went. So he liked having Cynthia around. John wrote Cynthia many love letters, including on tour in 1965, when he wrote how much he missed her and Julian and looked forward to spending more time with them. Cynthia was an integral part of this groovy, warm home life that Maureen describes so vividly. And Cynthia's presence is even more pronounced in Hunter's account of John's home life from the following year, 1967. Hunter describes an evening with the Lennons as quite ordinary, involving meals, visitors, record-playing TV, as well as bedtime for Julian. Although many of Hunter's observations of John's home life generally mirror Cleve, there is one noted change in 67, which is John himself. According to all those around him, he is quite different. In fact, Cynthia claimed that he was nicer, quieter, and more tolerant. And Pete Shotton concurred that at this time, John was not trying to prove anything that he no longer needed to be number one, which was why he was happy. John himself claimed to be happier in 1967. And in fact, I am blown away by how similar John is to Paul in 67. And actually, the changes in John in 1967 would be worth exploring at some point. Perhaps I will dedicate an episode to it. But anyway, to go back to John and Cynthia, Hunter observes them and concludes that they are essentially happy, or perhaps it was more, as Pete Shotton suggested, they had a peaceful coexistence. Cynthia is refreshingly open and realistic about their relationship, claiming that had it not been for the baby, they would have drifted apart because she said John's love was for the Beatles. Without the baby, he would have gone off with the Beatles forever. However, both John and Cynthia tell Hunter that they are glad the baby did happen, keeping them together, that it was fate, and John especially believed in fate. So while the relationship at this point seems to lack some passion, there clearly was a strong bond and love between them. Cynthia was willing to let John shine and do his own thing, which actually may have ultimately been a mistake for Lennon clearly wanted a playmate but she was with John constantly until 1968, when he was still reassuring her that he loved her, by the way. Now, I'm not trying to argue that John and Cynthia should have stayed together. I simply want to point out that John's home life was good in part because he had Cynthia. She was an impressive woman and she reflected well on John. They had their own legitimate, fascinating love story. And I think that Cynthia's role and Cynthia herself should be reevaluated. John diminished their story in order to elevate his next relationship, but both can be true. John and Cynthia's relationship can be significant, and John and Yoko's relationship can be epic. Both stories can exist, but too often Cynthia is positioned as someone who bore John, 
And if that's the case, well then John took a long time to figure that out. People around love Cynthia, Paul adored her, and clearly John did too. But that brings me to my next point. My third note is about the importance of Paul in John's life. In many books, Paul is positioned similarly to Cynthia, as someone who grounded John. But I think this is incorrect. While I think he absolutely did provide stability for John, I think Paul's real role was as John's partner, a partner in music, a partner in life, and most importantly, a partner in adventure, in a world-changing adventure. Hunter commented that working with Paul seemed to make John more alive. I think their unique chemistry created an electricity and energy that they both thrived off of. And I don't think that energy ever went away. In fact, May Pang recalled in the 70s that John would talk about it with Harry Nielsen. And she was referring to a possible Beatles reunion. But the main thing he talked about was that he did want to write with Paul again. He talked about it a lot end of quote. But in the 60s, Paul and John were still in this adventure together. In fact, a couple of months before the Cleve interview in late 65, Lennon told a reporter from Flip magazine that there are only about 100 people in the world who understand our music, George, Ringo, and a few friends around the world. He said, when Paul and I write a song, we try to take hold of something we believe in, a truth. We can never communicate 100% of what we feel, but if we can convey just a fraction, we have achieved something. We try to give people a feeling. They don't have to understand the music if they can just feel the emotion. End of quote. Note that at this point, the songs are still ours, and we write them, and they share the emotions that they are trying to convey. The way John speaks about their partnership seems to reflect an internalized shared feeling towards their songs which I don't think ever really went away. In fact, there's an adorable clip of Sean singing A Little Help from My Friends in the 70s. John doesn't tell him he wrote it. He says that he wrote it with his partner, Paul. But I digress. When this reporter from Flip Magazine asked John and Paul about the musical that they want to write, Paul comments that, I think we are resigned to the fact that this cannot come about until the Beatles are disbanded. Then, and only then, will we have time to work on compositions, suggesting that Lennon and McCartney conceived of their partnership as something that would continue even after the Beatles. Both Lennon and McCartney said this on various occasions. Nevertheless, despite Paul's plans to continue writing indefinitely with Lennon, at this time, McCartney chose to do his own thing and bought a house in London, away from the others. Pete Shotton commented on this in his book, noting that, and I quote, John had originally envisaged all four Beatles living in close proximity and was somewhat taken aback when Paul, the most independent member of the group, elected to remain in London. At that time, the bond John felt with the other Beatles was such that he, at least, would never have dreamed of living more than a few minutes away from the other three. But of course, Paul did. He was excited and distracted by the London scene, significantly taking his eyes off Lennon. Perhaps this is one of the reasons Lennon seems somewhat alone by the end of his profile. 
John's partner and the closest person to him was elsewhere having a ball, which John noticed. We know this because on September 23rd, 1969, three days after John's divorce declaration, John discussed all of this with Barry Miles, making it clear that John was aware of the dynamics at play in 66. I believe that Paul's new life absolutely unnerved John. Paul took acid with Tara Brown and his gang, and he took Tara and his wife to Liverpool for the Christmas holidays. Paul was deeply involved with Miles and the International Times, and Paul went to Paris with Robert Fraser. He was also very involved with Fraser, who has been characterized as the nerve center of the swinging 60s scene. I think Paul's distraction was keenly felt by John, and as I mentioned, I believe John was explicitly calling this out in the song And Your Bird Can Sing. I think John needed Paul's attention and was very adept at getting Paul's attention as we will see a couple of years later. I often wonder if Klaus Foreman noticed this dynamic between Lennon and McCartney, because on the cover of the Revolver album, which he designed, he has Lennon slyly looking to the right in the direction of McCartney, while McCartney looks off into the distance, turned away from Lennon, only his profile visible to us. But then came the 66 tour, and that changed everything. Paul was fiercely loyal and really showed up for John, and after that, they seemed to be very close again. McCartney even joined Lennon in Paris to celebrate his birthday in what was an echo trip of their original Paris trip five years earlier. And then, of course, Lennon spent a significant amount of time at Cavendish in 67. Barry Miles told me that he often saw John at Paul's place and that he and his wife went out for dinner with John and Paul multiple occasions in 67. I suspect John being in London was perhaps about being closer to the scene, but more importantly, I think it was about being close to Paul. And perhaps as Duncan and I discussed, Greece was an attempt to bring Paul back into the fold of the Beatles community. Paul was the only one who was not in Weybridge and John's conception of Greece shows that he didn't really care about being in the center of the London scene. I think for Lennon and McCartney, if the other isn't there, their community is not complete. They both essentially prove this in the breakup. John worked with George and Ringo, but it was never the Beatles. And Paul said that if someone else had quit the Beatles, they might have continued, but not without John. I think both John and Paul love the community of the Beatles, but their relationship to each other was primary. Still, while I think McCartney was uniquely important to Lennon, my fourth point is actually about the importance of the Beatles community to John. Even in this flip interview, John says that he and Paul write the music that only a handful of people like George and Ringo can understand, and he concludes that only really Beatles can play Beatles music, which reflects the importance of all the Beatles to John. These Cleve profiles provide a snapshot of just how close the Beatles are in 1966, and this is supported by Hunter's account a year later. John recalled to Hunter that, I did try and go on my way after we stopped touring. I had a few good laughs and games of Monopoly on my film, but it didn't work. I didn't meet anyone else I liked. I was never so glad to see the others. Seeing them made me feel normal again. And Hunter himself observed that, the only live stimulus John gets 
is from the other Beatles. No one has been within light years of taking their place in his life. He quotes John as saying that he wants to be left alone because he's not a mixer that, and I quote, I've got enough friends to see me through. I just want to be left alone. My so-called outgoing character is all false. I kept it up for years, but I'm not a loud mouth. It was a part I put on as a defense. Hunter also comments about how the Beatles generally repel all others because, and I quote, they are busy going their own way, doing their own thing together. John then clarified, most people don't get across to us. We never really communicated with other people. Now that we don't meet strangers at all, there is no need for any communication. We understand each other. It doesn't matter about the rest. Hunter notices that John, most of all, can't be without the other three for very long, which she says is hard luck on Sin. And he reports a conversation where Cynthia says she longs to go on holiday without John's buddies, but John counters that it's nice to have your mates around, to which Cynthia observes, they seem to need you less than you need them. Pete Shotton also noted the closeness of the Beatles, stating in his book that there never was and probably never will be a group more self-contained or tightly knit than the Beatles were in those days. The way their talents and personalities harmonized was little short of miraculous. Until about 1968, I never witnessed or even heard about a single serious disagreement between any of them. All those who were close to the Beatles noted the particular closeness of Lennon-McCartney, such as Alistair Taylor, who commented, forget what happened later. At that time, they were closer than any two men I've ever known. Cleve herself commented on how funny Lennon and McCartney were together. I mentioned all of this in an effort to reframe the story a little, or to counteract the post-breakup narrative, which was formed mostly by Lennon in the early breakup years when he was highly emotional and upset, saying things that he later refuted. The story he told then was that he lost interest in the Beatles the moment Yoko came on the scene. But of course, when you dig, this is patently false. Yet... It is still read into so much of the Beatles story. That's why these Cleve and Davies contemporaneous accounts are important. Both note the particular closeness of the Beatles. But it didn't end then. People like Harry Nielsen, who was close to John in the 70s, clarified that while he adored John, it was the Beatles that John still felt close to. He said, I'd like to say I was a very close friend. I wasn't a very close friend. No one was a very close friend to John other than the Beatles. He also told an author this anecdote. He said, someone told me they saw John Lennon walking down the street wearing a button saying, I love Paul. And this girl who told me that said, she asked him, why are you wearing the button that says, I love Paul? He said, because I love Paul. May Pang recalled how John fretted and worried about his relationships with the other Beatles in the early 70s when he was in the height of his arguments with them. So you see, he never lost interest. So what if we let go of that idea and acknowledge that John really, really loved the Beatles and always did? And that becomes our baseline. And we stopped with this story that John lost interest or, you know, they grew apart. We all know that Paul went through a tough time when the Beatles broke up, but John did too. By early 1970, when the Beatles are collapsing, John is checking himself into full-time therapy with Janov because he was in pain and needed support. This pain has always been attributed to his childhood issues, and I'm sure that's the original cause. But looking at how close the Beatles were and how vital they were to John's happiness and sanity, 
leads me to suspect that his pain might have become so present in 1970 because he was triggered by the breakup of his true family, the Beatles, which might have seemed like a repeat of his early years. By late 1970, John is attempting to separate emotionally from the Beatles, claiming that the dream is over. But by 71, he's again claiming that Paul is the closest person to him other than Yoko. And by 72, he's stating that nothing will ever break the love we have for each other. I still believe all you need is love. I'm hoping that accounts like Cleve's can lead to a more nuanced take of the situation. That he was both inspired by Yoko, but also deeply attached and bonded to the Beatles, essentially for the rest of his life. I'm making a case for the importance of Cynthia, the Beatles, and Paul in John's life, because I think to some extent that the breakup story diminished all of this. But of course, Yoko was also hugely important to John, and that requires its own episode at some point. Duncan and I discussed the word real, how it seemed to have significant meaning for John. And I think the song Real Love sounds like a defense of the love they shared, a defiant statement that what they had was real. In fact, various iterations of this song seem to address Paul. In this song, John seems a little defiant to me, though I'm not sure who he is defying, society, his younger self, Paul. But it seems that John is clear that what they had was real. And it's wonderful that the Beatles were all able to participate and contribute to this record. Of course, I'm not trying to sell anyone on this interpretation. This is my conclusion based on my research. Maybe it was about Yoko, or maybe it was about nothing at all and only written for a musical. But I suspect Yoko gave it to the Beatles for a reason. And if so, that was lovely and generous of her. I think the song Real Love deserves more discussion, so a deeper dive into the song will be forthcoming. My final note is about Cleef's comparison of John to Henry VIII. Duncan and I discussed this in depth, but I'd like to touch upon it again because it's so important to the Beatles story and it's kind of hard to reconcile. I had to think about it a lot because John is uniquely regal and commanding. And I think this aspect of John is one that the Beatles loved because I think this imperiousness, this arrogance and his boldness probably was part of what made the Beatles feel so confident in the world. In fact, I think John's imperiousness and disregard for authority was wildly exciting to McCartney. Perhaps it made the world seem bigger, more exciting to McCartney. Paul has said that when he met John, his life went in a different direction, perhaps indicating that John helped him break free of the expectations that he had placed on him and gave him the confidence to pursue his dream of music. So John's attitude and presence is important. But as we mentioned, this is only half of John. The other half of John is insecure and gentle. Paul has said repeatedly that John in real life was a very soft, very lovely guy and that John was not as tough as he seemed. So I think one of the problems is that John's regal outward comportment and behavior is conflated with the actual power dynamics of the band. And this is a mistake because the guy they saw 
was mostly easygoing and funny and relaxed. Paul is often positioned as John's right-hand man or deputy, which I dislike intensely because we are talking about a songwriting partnership in a creative endeavor. Paul was not executing John's bold vision for the Beatles. They were collaborating on creating music. And I think Paul brought an equal amount to the table, while John's presence and leadership skills were incredibly important in terms of rallying the group and making them feel strong. So was Paul's energy, the engine that he provided for the Beatles. And John acknowledged this. Like Paul, he commented on the first day they met. While Paul said that John helped him go in a new direction, John said that the day he met Paul was when things started moving, reflecting Paul's ability to drive action. So John is regal, but he's not the king of the Beatles. I believe if anyone had asked John at any time in his life if he believed he was smarter, more talented, more creative, or more powerful than Paul, he would have said no, though I think he would have said that he was madder and crazier, and he probably would have had a point. Though I suspect McCartney is way, way crazier than he lets on, so I'm not sure even that is true. But I think that John and Paul saw each other as equals. In fact, Paul has said, I think we always felt like we were kind of equal in talent. So although John carried himself like a king, I think it was a dance they did where Paul made sure John felt like a king and Paul was secure enough to do this for him, partly because he knew John needed it, but also I think he liked it when John was strong. Powerful John gave Paul confidence and Paul's energy kept John strong. So it worked for a long time until they got their wires crossed. But anyways, we've already talked about that one. That's it for now. Thank you all for listening. A big shout out to Duncan Driver for being such a fabulous partner in crime in this series. If you're enjoying this podcast, please give it a shout out in social or give it a rating or review to help promote it so that other people can find it. Also, if you have comments about the episode or questions you would like to have answered on this podcast or ideas or requests for future episodes, please let me know. You can tweet, post, or email me with your comments. And finally, I wanna thank all my patrons for the support. Although I have some of the best collaborators in the world, such as the brilliant Duncan Driver, this is a one-woman podcast owned, run, edited, and produced by me. So the support is hugely appreciated. That's all for now. We will be back very soon with our discussion of the George Profile, which is gold. It's equally revealing and insightful. So until next time. I will now leave you with Duncan Driver reading the full profile on John Lennon. How does a beetle live? John Lennon lives like this, by Maureen Cleave. It was this time three years ago that the Beatles first grew famous. 
Ever since then, observers have anxiously tried to gauge whether their fame was on the wax or on the wane. They foretold the fall of the old Beatles, they searched diligently for the new Beatles, which was as pointless as looking for the new Big Ben. At last, they have given up. The Beatles' fame is beyond question. It has nothing to do with whether they are rude or polite, married or unmarried, 25 or 45, whether they appear on top of the pops or do not appear on top of the pops. They are well above any position even a rolling stone might jostle for. They are famous in the way that the Queen is famous. When John Lennon's Rolls Royce with its black wheels and its black windows goes past, people say, it's the Queen or it's the Beatles. With her, they share the security of a stable life at the top. They all tick over in the public esteem. She in Buckingham Palace, they in the Weybridge Isha area. Only Paul remains in London. The Weybridge community consists of the three married Beatles. They live there among the wooded hills and the stockbrokers. They have not worked since Christmas, and their existence is secluded and curiously timeless. What day is it? John Lennon asks, with interest when you ring up with news from outside. The fans are still at the gates, but the Beatles see only each other. They are better friends than ever before. Ringo and his wife Maureen may drop in on John and Sin. John may drop in on Ringo. George and Patty may drop in on John and Sin, and they might all go round to Ringo's, by car, of course. Outdoors is for holidays. They watch films. They play rowdy games of buccaneer. They watch television till it goes off, often playing records at the same time. They while away the small hours of the morning making mad tapes. Bedtimes and mealtimes have no meaning as such. We've never had time before to do anything but just be Beatles, John Lennon said. He is much the same as he was before. He still peers down his nose, arrogant as an eagle, although contact lenses have righted the short sight that originally caused the expression. He looks more like Henry VIII ever now than his face is filled out. He is just as imperious, just as unpredictable, indolent, disorganized, childish, vague, charming, and quick-witted. He is still easygoing, still tough as hell. He never asked after Fred Lennon, he said, disappointed. Fred is his father. He emerged after they got famous. He was here a few weeks ago. It was only the second time in my life I'd seen him. I showed him the door. He went on cheerfully. I wasn't having him in the house. His enthusiasm is undiminished, and he insists on it being shared. George has put him on this Indian music. You're not listening, are you? He shouts after 20 minutes of the record. It's amazing. This so cool. Don't Indians appear cool to you? Are you listening? The music is thousands of years old. It makes me laugh. The British going over there and telling them what to do. Quite amazing. And he switched on the television set. Experience has sown few seeds of doubt in him. Not that his mind is closed, but it's closed round whatever he believes at the time. <laughs> Christianity will go, he said. It will vanish and shrink. I needn't argue about that. I'm right, and I will be proved right. We're more popular than Jesus now. I don't know which will go first, rock and roll or Christianity. Jesus was all right, but all his disciples were thick and ordinary. It's them twisting it that ruins it for me. He is reading extensively about religion. He shops in lightning swoops on Asprey's these days, and there is some fine wine in his cellar, but he is still quite unselfconscious. He is far too lazy to keep up appearances, even if he had worked out what the appearances should be, which he has not. 
He is now 25. He lives in a large, heavily panelled, heavily carpeted, mock Tudor house set on a hill with his wife Cynthia and his son Julian. There is a cat called after his aunt Mimi in a purple dining room. Julian is three. He may be sent to the Lycee in London. Seems like the only place for him in his position, says his father, surveying him dispassionately. I feel sorry for him, though. I couldn't stand ugly people, even when I was five. Lots of the ugly ones are foreign, aren't they? We did a speedy tour of the house, Julian panting along behind, clutching a large porcelain Siamese cat. John swept past the objects in which he had lost interest. That's Sydney, a suit of armour. That's a hobby I had for a week, a room full of model racing cars. Sin won't let me get rid of that, a fruit machine. In the sitting room are eight little green boxes with winking red lights. He bought them as Christmas presents, but never got round to giving them away. They wink for a year. One imagines him sitting there till next Christmas, surrounded by these little winking boxes. He paused over objects he still fancies. A huge altar crucifix of a Roman Catholic nature with IHS on it. A pair of crutches, a present from George. An enormous Bible he bought in Chester. His gorilla suit. I thought I might need a gorilla suit, he said. He seemed sad about it. I've only worn it twice. I thought I might pop in in the summer and drive around in the Ferrari. We were all going to get them and drive round in them, but I was the only one who did. I've been thinking about it, and if I didn't wear the head, it would make an amazing fur coat with legs, you see. <laughs> I would like a fur coat, but I've never run into any. One feels that his possessions, to which he adds daily, have got the upper hand. All the tape recorders, the five television sets, the cars, the telephones, of which he knows not a single number. The moment he approaches a switch, it fuses. Six of the winking boxes, guaranteed to last till next Christmas, have gone funny already. His cars, the Rolls, the Mini Cooper, black wheels, black windows, the Ferrari being painted black, puzzle him. There's the, then there's the swimming pool, the trees sloping away beneath it. Nothing like what I ordered, he says resignedly. He wanted the bottom to be a mirror. It's an amazing household, he said. None of my gadgets really work, except the gorilla suit. That's the only suit that fits me. He's very keen on books. We'll always ask what is good to read. He buys quantities of books, and these are kept tidily in a special room. He has Swift, Tennyson, Huxley, Orwell, costly leather-bound editions of Tolstoy, Oscar Wilde. Then there's Little Women and all the William books from his childhood, and some unexpected volumes such as 41 Years in India by Field Marshal Lord Roberts, and Curiosities of Natural History by Francis T. Buckland. This last, with its chapter headings, Earless Cats, Wooden-Legged People, The Immortal Harvey's Mother is right up his street. He approaches reading with a lively interest, untempered by too much formal education. I've read millions of books, he said. That's why I seem to know things. He is obsessed by Celts. I've decided I am a Celt, he said. I'm on Bodicea's side. All those bloody blue-eyed blondes chopping people up. I have an awful feeling wishing I was there. Not, that, not there with scabs and sores, but there through reading about it. The books don't give you much more than a paragraph about how they lived. I have to imagine that. He can sleep almost indefinitely. Is probably the laziest person in England. Physically lazy, he said. I don't mind writing or reading or watching or speaking, but sex is the only physical thing I can be bothered with anymore. 
Occasionally, he is driven to London in the rolls by an ex-Welsh guardsman called Anthony. Anthony has a moustache that intrigues him. The day I visit him, he has been invited to lunch in London, about which he was rather excited. Do you know how long lunch lasts? he asked. I've never been to lunch before. I went to a lion's the other day and had egg and chips and a cup of tea. The waiters kept looking and saying, no, it isn't him. It can't be. He settled himself into the car and demonstrated the television, the folding bed, the refrigerator, the writing desk, the telephone. He has spent many fruitless hours on that telephone. I only once got through to a person, he said, and they were out. Anthony had spent the weekend in Wales. John asked if they'd kept a welcome for him on the hillside, and Anthony said they had. They discussed the possibility of an extension for the telephone. We had to call at the doctor's because John had a bit of a sea urchin in his toe. Don't want to be like Dorothy Dandridge, he said, dying of a splinter 50 years later. He added reassuringly that he had washed the foot in question. <laughs> we bowled along in a costly fashion through the countryside. Famous and loaded is how he describes himself now. They keep telling me I'm all right for money, but then I think I might have spent it all by the time I'm 40, so I keep going. That's why I started selling my cars. Then I changed my mind. They got them all back and a new one too. I want the money just to be rich. The only other way of getting it is to be born rich. If you have money, that's power without having to be powerful. I often think that it's all a big conspiracy that the winners of the government and the people like us who've got the money. That joke about keeping the workers ignorant is still true. That's what they said about the Tories and the landowners and that. Then Labour were meant to educate the workers, but they don't seem to be doing that anymore. He has a morbid horror of stupid people. Famous and loaded as I am, I still have to meet soft people. It often comes into my mind that I'm not really rich. There are really rich people, but I don't know where they are. He finds being famous quite easy, confirming one suspicion that the Beatles had been leading up to this all their lives. Everybody thinks they would have been famous if only they'd had the Latin and that. So when it happens, it comes naturally. You remember your old granny saying soft things like, you'll make it with that voice. Not he added that he had any old grannies. He got to the doctor two and three quarter hours early and to lunch on time, but in the wrong place. He bought a giant compendium of gains from Asprey's, but having opened it, he could not, of course, shut it again. He wondered what else he should buy. He went to Brian Epstein's office. Any presents? He asked eagerly. He observed that there was nothing like getting things for free. He tried on the attractive Miss Hanson's spectacles. The rumour came through that the Beatles had been sighted walking down Oxford Street. He brightened. One of the others must be out, he said, as though speaking of an escaped bear. We only let them out one at a time, said the attractive Miss Hanson firmly. He said that to live and have a laugh were the things to do, but was that enough for the restless spirit? Weybridge, he said, won't do it all. I'm just stopping at it like a bus stop. Bankers and stockbrokers live there. They can add figures and Weybridge is what they live in and they think it's the end. They really do. I think of it every day, me and my Hansel and Gretel house. I'll take my time. I'll get my real house when I know what I want. You see, there's something else I'm going to do, something I must do, only I don't know what it is. That's why I go around painting and taping and drawing and writing and that, because it may be one of them. All I know is this isn't for me. Anthony got him in the compendium into the car and drove him home with the television flickering in the soothing darkness, 
while the Londoners outside rushed home from work. The end. Yay! <laughs>